You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And before I tell you what's coming up on the show tonight, I must congratulate all the producers who had products listed in the Great Taste Award Top 50 products. Last week we were talking to Peter Hannan from Hannan Meats and they had three products listed there and there's lots of other great Irish products included. So be sure to look out for the Great Taste stars when you're doing your shopping. Tonight's stars include Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants, who will join me in the studio shortly with his latest wine recommendations. Aoife Carragy from the Irish Food Writers Guild will join us on the phone to talk about the Guild's Social Responsibility Award. Artist Henrietta Graham will be telling us why she loves to paint kitchen scenes and portraits of chefs. And finally, at the end of the show, I'll be finding out what Shane Murray, who took part in TV's Great Irish Bake Off, has been up to. If you'd like to get in touch with me, please drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organised. Session. It's always great to hear from you. So, as I said, the first guest this evening is our resident wine guru, Ron Forrestal. So, without further delay, let's find out what suggestions he has for us this month. Bon appetit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Ron, how are you this evening? Great, Sharon. And um, I was going to ask you, could we talk about Brazilian wines in line with the Olympics being on? But the closest we can do is um, a Malbec and you have a couple from Argentina and one from Chilean. Yes, Chilean, uh, well, it's South sorry, America. One from Chile, I should say. <laughs> yes, from South America, at least. Yeah, yeah, the Brazilian wine, there is Brazilian wine in the market. And uh, I actually had one at one stage. They, they produce a lot of wine. Um, but they have such a huge population for themselves, very little of it exported at all. Um, but they make some nice products. Uh, but by the time they're exported and get to here, they're probably a bit expensive for what people would pay for them, and there just isn't a market for them yet. But maybe eventually, you would know. Well, you never know when they're making peat wine <laughs> down the <laughs> it's road. True, absolutely. Anything could happen. In West Limerick, there could be fine Brazilian wine coming yes, out of the yeah. country in a few years' time. But in the meantime, we have lovely Malbecs, and I... I assumed that Malbec was Argentinian, but that's not actually the case. No, but this is the case with everything, really, that the grape, uh, the, the grape variety Malbec originated in, in France, um, in the south of France, uh, Coteronne, um, Cahors, down into Languedoc, um, all that south, huge wine producing area in the south of France. It originated there, but most all grape varieties did in one way or another, so that's not, um, that's not anything unusual. But... It's, it's like uh, Sauvignon Blanc going to New Zealand. It just found a really good home. It works very well. And with Malbec going to Argentina, it's just a perfect climate to grow Malbec. So it is all about the climate. Absolutely. Is it a white grape, a red grape, a red black grape. grape? Okay, red grape. And it's a fairly robust, full-bodied. Um, and the reason for that is that the Argentinians particularly eat so much red meat, they need a product that can really stand up to, to that kind of heavy flavours that they have. And hence they have a Malbec. They don't drink Pinot Noir or those light reds because they just don't have any food that's, that will manage them at all. But the reason I'm, I, I said we might talk about this even is just it exploded the popularity of it. It's, it's amazing. I've never seen a particular product like the, the grape Malbec to have the sales grow so much so quickly. Like five years ago, you'd struggle to find a wine list with a Malbec on it except a very big wine list. You know, they would have 40-plus wines in it. But if you had a standard wine list in a restaurant with 22 or 23 wines, there's no way a Malbec would have made that on. Whereas now I have wine lists with 27 or 28 wines in them and they'll have two Malbecs. And is that because we are more aware of what wines go well with what foods and because we are huge meat eaters in this country and people love going out for their, mm. for their good piece of steak in a restaurant? I think that's exactly it, really. I think that people got more discerning. Um, they're more interested in matching food. They're, now, the thing about Malbec is Malbec is, is a food wine. It's a difficult one to sit down at home with and drink without actually having dinner and having a, a reasonably substantial dinner now, not a, not a canopies or anything like that. You really need to eat with it. But it's, it's, it's probably that and the fact that there's so many of them being imported in the country now and the quality is really good and they're great value. Um, like they're... You can start buying them at 9, 10 euros, you can pay it, but if you pay 12 or 13 euros, you're into a really good product. 
And the French equivalent of that, if you buy it from the Côte d'Aron, south of France, could be 18, 19, 20 euros for the same kind of quality. So you, if you do go for a French Malbec, you're going to be paying a lot more than you would Absolutely. if it was from South America. And the French tend to blend it, um, blend it with... When it goes to South, South America, um, Argentina in particular, the sunshine is much stronger. Um, it, it ends up being a slightly sweeter grape uh, that they use to finish, whereas the French one isn't quite... It's a bit, little bit rougher, so they tend to blend it with Syrah or they blend it with Cabernet Franc or something else to smooth it out slightly. But um, it, now it's not to everybody's taste now, but the people who like it really like it, and um, and a lot of them don't drink anything else. But we have I, I, I've one particular restaurant um, in Adair, they use they have a pouring in the bar, but they use it as a, one of the glass options in the bar, and they use six or eight cases a week of it. It's um, it's amazing. It's the biggest selling red by the glass that they have. And in terms of alcohol percentage, is it up there like thirteen, oh, yeah, fourteen percent? Yeah. They range from 13 to 14 to 14.5 in some cases. Yeah, so it, it is, it's a good, strong wine. You would want to be having the food with it, really. You would absolutely <laughs> want to be eating with it. I think, I think it's a difficult one to, to um, manage without food. And I brought along three of them just to give an idea tonight, just to show you. Two from Argentina uh, and one from Chile, because Chile makes some really good Malbec as well. And it's a grape that works very well in Chile as well. Just that Chile is so popular for Merlot, Cabernet and, um, and Carmenere that Malbec is, is grown in much smaller quantities. But the three I've brought, so I've brought two from Argentina at two different price levels, really. We have a Donna Parra Malbec, which is probably one of my most uh, popular red wines in all, um, and that would, that, that would cost about €9 Euros a bottle. And then I have the Pascal Tosso, which is a, a bit more upmarket. Uh, they're both from Mendoza in Argentina, um, which is a beautiful place in Argentina. It's like going back into the... 60s or 70s, a lot of old cars, that kind of thing. It's really nice place. And Pascal Tosso is one of their best producers, and this is about a 12, 13 euro bottle of wine. There's a big difference in those now. That tw- the one that, that, that gets 12 or 13 euros is much finer, uh, flavour lasts much longer, but uh, both, both quite similar. Then the Chilean one, this is from Vuminent, which is a producer that, that, that we use a lot of product from the Sauvignon Blanc and Merlot and everything else as well. But this is their secret uh, Malbec, and it's a beautiful product. Again, around €13 Euros a bottle. A really nice product. And the two uh, Argentinian ones, they're screw tops. Yeah. And the Chilean one is cork. Is there any significance in that? No, just that the whole range, uh, this secret range from Vuminant, they all use corks. Malbec ages quite well, so they can... If you have one for two or three years, it'll age quite well. Okay, so it's it's not like the peat wine, which is designed to drink rot young. You should you can put your Malbec away, and, and it Absolutely. just gets it improves with age. Yeah, improve, if anything, it softens out. Whereas when they're drank young, they tend to be slightly powerful and kind of robust as a red. And as the longer they're left, the smoother they get. But now some people like the robustness; that's why mm. they drink them young. But they they age very well, and they're used in in, in France a lot. As where they use 10 or 15% of Malbec to give a particular characteristic to the red that they're making. The Argentinian ones there, you've been out there and you've visited the vineyards. Yeah, I've been in, I was lucky enough to go to Argentina a few years ago, um, to Mendoza in Argentina, because it's quite close to Chile, you know, it's just over the other side of the, the, the Andes. So, yes, luckily I was in Mendoza, which is one of the nicest places I've ever been. And they're... And they really like Irish people. Like, you know, we say other countries are very welcoming to Irish people. They really like Irish people. There's a huge history of the two countries. And um, the streets named after, after Irish counties. Amazing, amazing. So it is. But it's lovely. And they really, and, and they get a bad press uh, for wine for a number of years because they export a lot of really cheap product. Because they've, uh, they had a lot of home market to fill and a South American market to fill. Whereas Chile did the opposite thing. Chile exported a lot of very good product because they wanted to break into the market and Argentina did it slightly the wrong way. Whereas now they're trying to catch up. Um, whereas Argentinian wine is more popular than Chilean wine in the UK. Yet in Ireland, Chilean wine outsells Argentina by 21. And why is that? Because Chilean wine is just so uh, affordable. You know, it's just... it's. I got a house wine in restaurants and hotels. Uh, it's a Chilean. One of the Chilean, one of the house wines will be Chilean in ninety percent of those places. My perception of Chilean wine would be that it wouldn't be as good quality as Argentina's wine would be. 
Argentina would be delighted with that. Uh, is that I mean, is that I mean, that's just a perception I have. You know, I've nothing to back it up. But I have to say now, when I see the label for that, the secret mm. wine that you have there, that label I feel doesn't maybe reflect the quality of the wine. It's too funky. It's too modern. It is. Well, they actually have an artist, uh, a ch- famous Chilean artist, does a label for each of the ranges. Yeah. So that's, that's it's very a, modern or it something. It is very modern, yeah, yeah. whereas the uh, Argentinians are much more classic. They tend to go for a much more classic look. And then, you see, I think that just, you know, from a marketing perspective and the brand, and that just, you know, it's like a, they say about a book and how the cover sells mm. a book, that it's very important to get it right with the packaging with anything, I suppose, is the same. But when you look at those labels... If you had to, if you didn't know the price of them or anything mm. else, where they came from or what sort of wine they were, even the other the labels for the Argentinian wines, I think you'd you tend to go for them before you would the. Chilean it does, one. yeah, and that means an awful lot in retail, um, in supermarkets and in, in wine shops. That means an awful lot because you're deciding everything on what you think on your perception of the bottle, uh, because you haven't tasted them a lot of the time. So that's the restaurants don't have the same issue because you can't see it, so you've ordered it and it arrives, and you don't have that kind of um, um, decision to make. So it's, yeah, yeah you're right, absolutely. Um, I think they're, um, the other labels that, that Vuminant use in all their other ranges are much more classic labels. This is just a particular range that they put into these with this um, Ch- Chilean artist. And have you visited any of the vineyards in Chile? I have, yeah. See, uh, I, I was in Argentina because we went to Chile. Oh, okay. And was this like a holiday or was this a no, working work. trip? No, okay, work. yeah. Because um, you go that far, you have to yeah. make the most make, of it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And it's it's only a, a flight over. Uh, it takes about an hour to get from Santiago to Mendoza. And when you go on a trip like that, you go to the vineyards, you go to lots of different vineyards, you taste a lot of wine, you spit out wine. a lot of wine. Yeah, well, lucky enough, we went... Um, I've been to Chile a couple of times, but we went... First time we went with a brand that kind of are very brand focused, so you you taste their wine basically for eight days in a row. Um, the second time we were much more uh, objective because we were visiting three different wineries at the time, which meant that we were um, we seen a lot of wine that was outside of what we were used to. Because there's no point going to Chile and tasting the same wine that you sell when you're in Ireland. Well, you know, yeah, I suppose it's meant to be an opportunity <laughs> to yeah, diversify yeah. the portfolio and add a few new wines to it and be able to come home and talk about them I, I think absolutely detail. but it's amazing the amount of people um, you know you think uh, it's, it's probably not you know you're meeting people who own restaurants and who run restaurants and it's probably not them that have been to South America but the amazing amount of their kids have been to South America you know where they've gone on a gap around the world and different six things down yeah. and I know people who I've arranged you know um, to visit either I've arranged a bit of work for a couple of kids who wanted to do two or three weeks um, in Argentina are very open to that they, they don't pay them or anything now but <laughs> they'll give them something to do for a couple of weeks if they want to. and but maybe uh, the odd glass of wine yeah. but they're great for visiting these people love to see people coming that's good to know yeah. isn't it yeah but it's a great experience and and, and they're they're fairly big operations all of them there's not that many small wineries in either Chile or Argentina unlike France which is you know hundreds of small farmer kind of stroke winemakers they don't have that they have much bigger operations Generally. Well, very interesting to talk about it. Just remind us then about the three bottles and the price for each of them yes. there. So we have two Argentinian Malbecs, um, one called Don Aparo, which costs about nine euros a bottle. Then the, the upper level from Argentina is from uh, Mendoza and Argentina as well. It's Pascal Tosso. Um, that's costing around 13 euros a bottle. And the Chilean version is from Vuminant called Secret, and that's about 13 euros as well. Okay, great. And if people want to get in touch with you to put an order in the websites, forestal.ie, all your details are there. And you have the Facebook page and Twitter as well. Absolutely. Ron, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming in this evening. Thanks very much. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Thanks again to Ron. And if you have a wine question that you'd like me to put to him on his next visit, please drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie and I'll be sure to put it to him. Still to come tonight, artist Henrietta Graham will be telling us why she loves to paint kitchen scenes and portraits of chefs. And then finally, at the end of the show, I'll be finding out what Shane Murray has been up to. And Shane took part in TV's Great Irish Bake Off there a few years ago. So we're going to find out what he's been up to 
to since his television appearance. Next, we are going to look at an award that's up for grabs. The Irish Food Writers Guild recently announced details about its Social Responsibility Award. Aoife Carragy is the chair of the Guild and she joins us on the line now to explain what the awards are all about. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Aoife, you're very welcome to the programme this evening. Thanks very much, Sharon. Thanks for having me along. And I think we should start off just explaining to the listeners what exactly the Irish Food Writers Guild is. Okay, so um, I suppose um, the the, the Guild began back in in 1990 and it was a number of Irish food writers who, um, people who have household names now, like Georgina Campbell and Biddy White Lennon and so on, who are still um, core members of, of the Guild. They, um, they decided that they were working freelance and they wanted to, to really, I suppose, to, you know, provide a network for themselves um, to, to work better professionally um, and to kind of provide mutual support, but also to see ways in which that they, by coming together as a group of, of food writers, ways that they could then support the wider food sector and others working in the food sector. So that's, that's essentially um, what, how it kind of started. Um, and over the... What, what it is, 26 years it's grown from that kind of dozen uh, founding members, over 60 different members today, which just reflects as well how, you know, how food writing has changed so much in, in those years. And um, we, have, we have bloggers now, and we would also have broadcasters, and we have speech stylists, and it's, it's quite a broad membership. You're not telling me that Georgina Campbell has been going 26 years. She's so youthful, she couldn't be around that long. Well, that's, I know, I, I, I guess tearing around the country, checking out all the best places to eat and say kind of um, it obviously does something something for the, for the system you know because so yeah certainly um, it's, it's, it's quite amazing herself and, and, and busy and you know some really dynamic people have been kind of going going strong at it since since the early 90s yeah and I think what you're saying there at the start about why they came together because being a freelance person regardless of what your job is it can be very isolated and you know yeah. not to have anybody to talk to during the day or people to turn to advice to have the crack with or anything like that it is a very different working environment than if you're going into an office to do a nine-to-five job absolutely and so we would now like at the minute now we would have monthly meetings and it's partly kind of to get together and to have you know, have a bit of industry gossip and have, have a bit of networking, but also then we would um, try and do things that would be maybe, um, the, the types, types of things that maybe if you were working in a company that the, the company might do for you in terms of further professional education. So we invite in speakers and, um, you know, we've, we've, we've elements that kind of add to our work, but it's a way of just supporting each other in that way. But as you say, really, a, a lot of it is, um, is about just making those kind of friendships within the industry as well. So, um, and you see, you know, friends like like Georgina and Biddy, whose, whose friendships have, have endured um, so much over the, over the years, and that's I think really stands um, to the guild, you know. And I've noticed that you don't always have your meetings in Dublin; that you do go out and about around the country, and they're nearly like field trips. Because I think I saw recently on Twitter you were in the Eco Village in Clock Jordan. That's right. Just yesterday, yeah. One of our one of our members, um, Ollie Moore is um, a resident down there in the Eco Village and um, he's a very active food writer and, and campaigner. Um, so he brought us down and showed us around the amazing work that they're doing down there. So, so yeah, we would, go, um, we would go to places like we went last year down to, um, to Kilkenny to see some of the producers down there. So we use that as an opportunity to try and get out and about as well and see, you know, go and see some of the, some of the work that's happening around the country as well and kind of keep ourselves up to speed on, on some of the great stuff that's happening. You have an award system then as well, a food awards every year. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so I think one of the, 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 the greatest achievements, one of the proudest achievements that the Guild has, has done is um, back as far as 93, we set up a, um, an annual food awards, which is our um, their annual awards, as I say, which recognise um, the, the excellence of Irish speciality food producers out there. So everything from, you know, butchers to bakers to um, cider makers, even now we've added a, a drink award recently. And so we um, we hold those awards every year. Um, and it's something that we're, we're very proud of. And one of, the, one of the things that we're most proud of, I suppose, is that the fact that there are there's many awards out there now, many, many different food awards. But a lot of them, um, it's, it's up to the the producer to enter themselves in the award and that's there's a cost involved in that so sometimes it kind of favors 
the bigger producers or the supermarkets or the people who really can, you know, have the admin behind them to kind of, you know, and have a bit of money behind them to enter these awards. Whereas our awards are completely free and the uh, producers can't enter themselves. They're solely nominated by the guild members. So um, it means that we feel that really the, we're, we're, we're giving people the awards because they truly, truly deserve them, not because they were maybe the best within a week category. Um, so we're, we're very proud of those awards. Um, and then just um, last year, we decided to, to introduce a, a new set of awards. Um, so I suppose the thinking was, um, I mean, in general, as, as a guild, we're, we're conscious that, I mean, food, we, we absolutely celebrate, you know, excellence of food and, you know, it's about, it's about flavour and it's about supporting local and it's about all those great things. But we're conscious that food issues or issues relating to food are, are so kind of broad and go so much further than simply, you know, what's on your plate, whether that be at home or in restaurants. And we were conscious that there's a lot of fantastic work being done by companies or individuals or organizations that are that are involved in food in, in very broad different ways um, around kind of issues of social responsibility that we felt we wanted to, to try and recognize um, and showcase. So we set up our annual um, so social Responsibility Awards, uh, which we had our, our, our first one last year, and our second second year is now coming up um, shortly. So we have our um, our nomination process is 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 at play at the minute. Um, unlike our food awards, we're actually opening up the, the nomination process. So we're inviting people to let us know about either a company or individual that they think deserves the award, or if they if, if it's something that they're doing themselves, so they let us know about what they're up to. So that it's, it's in part, I suppose, to kind of educate ourselves about some of the great work that's going on out there as much as it is to kind of showcase and celebrate um, the people involved. So the decision then to have a different process for the, the Food Awards and the Social Responsibility Award, is that because you feel that there could be a lot of work going on there by individuals or companies in terms of social responsibility that we're not aware of on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose as, as food writers, we would be very au okay with with the excellent uh, produce that's out there. And that's something that we come into contact with on a day-to-day basis. But unless you're maybe going and kind of writing a, a story about um, the social responsibility aspects or really doing your research, we may not kind of know about it. And part of the thinking, I suppose, of setting up these awards was a way of educating ourselves as to some of the brilliant work that is going on around the country and making kind of meaningful links with some of those organizations and individuals. So it was kind of a, a way to reach out as, as much as, um, and, and to kind of educate ourselves as, a, as much as a way to, to kind of celebrate and showcase all that work. As this is the second year, you have a list mm-hmm. then of winners from last year. So why don't you tell us a bit about who they were, because that would give us a, a better idea, a better insight as to what you're looking for in terms of nominations this year. Sure. So um, so I suppose last year um, well, we had we had our, our overall winner, um, which I'll come to a second, in a second, and then we had two commandees. So um, one of the commandees was a really, um, really fantastic little project called Flanagan's Field Community, um, and it was a community garden in in, in Rialto that had been um, turned into. It was really, I mean, it was it was kind of an eyesore of a, of a of a patch that had been turned into a community garden. And from that garden, then had grown Dublin's first GOD6 dome. So this is um, a really um, very very innovative um, setup to allow intensive year-round sustainable food production but it also works as an exhibition space and as a as a meeting space and education area um, and, a, and kind of a, a piece of art if you like for the, for the uh, the local area um, so that was one of the um, the organizations that we commended another one was a group called healthy food for all and they are an all-island charity that are trying to address food poverty by promoting access and availability and affordability of healthy food for various kind of low-income groups um, so two quite different kinds of um, initiatives there, but two that we were really impressed with. The one that took the, the overall prize, um, and I suppose um, for, for, for various reasons, but really for the, the scale, the scope, and the ambition of the, venture, of the venture, was an initiative called the Be A Food Initiative. And it's now in its fourth year. It was set up back in 2012, 
Um, and in 2014, then, they opened up a food redistribution centre. So the focus of the initiative is to try and tackle um, food poverty and food waste by, by linking up businesses that might have surplus food with charities who need that surplus food. So I suppose one of the key things that would challenge maybe big um, supermarkets, say, who have surplus food is, well, I have today I have, you know, what it, what it might be, a, a load of out-of-date um, out of um, bread, perhaps, that is actually perfectly good to eat for the next number of days, but um, we can't sell it. Um, but we can't bring it to one charity and dump it on them. So this food distribution centre allows them to pass it through BS Food Initiative and then they can get it to the people that need it. Um, so it was, I suppose, the, the, the kind of scope and the scale of, of the initiative that really, really impressed us in particular. Um, very well organised with some, some people um, who, who are leading the project who are really very experienced in the, in the world of, of Irish social action. Um, so so that they were our, our overall winners. A very um, worthy winner because food waste is such an issue. It is, and I suppose, that, you know, what, what we lo- lo- loved about this project as well is that it helps those companies that want to make a difference and want to help but aren't in a position to do so. Um, and it's about kind of, you know, harnessing that... Um, that energy and that desire to change things and to be more socially responsible. Um, and, and really, you know, I, I mean, there's, there's, there's many countries like France has been leading the way in terms of actually um, legislating that companies have to be more responsible about their food waste. But we don't have those kind of systems in place here. So it's great to see companies that are encouraging them. If you can't kind of, you know, use the stick to use the carrot kind of um, option of just making things, making it easier and more viable for them to tackle food waste. So when you get all the entries in, what's the next step in terms of judging? How does the process work to decide who is worthy of getting uh, an award? So we have a number of our um, of our members that have volunteered to, to kind of coordinate the entries. So they will, we have our little subcommittee that will sit down and we have all the entries in. Last year we got over 20 entries um, which was fantastic. It gave us a really good range of businesses to be looking at. So they would go through all those entry forms and um, and shortlist down to, to 10 that they feel deserve serious attention from the rest of the guild. And then we would come together um, for, a, for a, a, a judging meeting and we would, we would the, the, all the information would have been kind of circulated to the guild and we would um, discuss and you know, I suppose troubleshoot the, the you know the various the, the various issues around it and any queries that we might have, and then we take a vote on it. So it's very much kind of a democratic process. So the entries that we're we're as I say we're um, calling in the entries at the minute for the for the nomination, and um, the deadline is the end of this month. So the Friday the twenty sixth of August is is the cutoff for for entries. And if people are looking to get more information, is the best place to direct them to the Guild's website? Yeah, exactly. So irishfoodwritersguild.ie. And then if you look um, at for the backslash social responsibility, so um, you'll find you find the tab there on our um, on our website, and um, you can request a nomination form um, and send it into us. It's a short enough form, and we have to kind of shorten tweet. Um, so it, wouldn't, it, it hopefully isn't too taxing to, to fill out, but it gives us the information that we need. And of course, it's free to enter, as you said, so there's no charge, no money involved. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. When will the winners be announced? So um, they will be announced in October. Um, we'll have a, an, a, 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 a small little award ceremony um, to announce the, the winners and it'll be um, press will be invited to that and we'll be looking to to try and kind of get the word out then about about the winners. Um, so I suppose, um, you know, at the minute, the, the awards, are, it's, a, it's a small enough initiative. Um, we'd love to grow it further. I mean, we'd love to have a sponsor come on board and allow us to actually give the winners some kind of practical support as well. Um, but as for the minute, it really, it's about us kind of educating ourselves and then getting the word out to, to our readers as, um, and also to the further press as well. Well, thanks so much for telling us all about it tonight. As you said, go to the Irish Food Writers Guild website for all the details and to download the nomination form. And we look forward to catching up with you in October to find out who the winners were. Aoife, thanks again and enjoy the rest of your evening.
Thank you so much, Sharon. Lovely to chat to you. You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. So far in the show tonight, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants has some great wine suggestions for us. And just before the break, I was talking to the chair of the Irish Food Writers Guild, Aoife Carragy, about the Guild's Social Responsibility Awards. Don't forget, if you've missed any of the show so far, it will be up on the podcast later in the week. And you'll find the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show or subscribe free of charge and download it on iTunes or use the podcast app. Still to come tonight, Shane Murray from the Great Irish Bake Off will be telling us what he's been up to and about his new bakery, Mud Bakery. Next though, our guest is an artist and I recently came across Henrietta Graham on Twitter and I was intrigued about her work as she enjoys painting portraits of chefs and kitchen scenes. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk to her about her passion and I'm delighted that she joins us on the phone now. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Henrietta, you're so good to take the call tonight because I know you're a very busy bee at the moment. You're moving to a new studio. I am indeed. I'm moving to a new studio in the heart of Newlyn, which has got a wonderful history for artists. Well, just tell us now where exactly you are in England and just assume that our geography of England isn't very good. Absolutely. It is um, all the way down in the southwest in Cornwall. Right, right, right at the edge of Cornwall. Right, sort of, you know, you're toppling, toppling right off into the foot of England, and it's a little fishing village. My studio, my new studio is, um, which is called Newlyn, which is full of. It's a huge fishing fleet. It's a huge port, um, and has a, a, a big legacy of artists. So it's a, it's a round peg in a round hole for me to be there now. And is this where you grew up? Is this Not where at you're? All. No, oh. actually, I'm from London. I. I moved to Cornwall about 15 years ago as I thought it was probably going to be more conducive to isolating myself and concentrating on painting. And also I could get bigger spaces. I mean, I'm working in an old cannery, which is about 35 foot by 35 foot with huge, great big ceilings. And a space like that in London would be impossible to afford and also wouldn't necessarily have the fantastic views of the sea and the inspiration that that brings. And, I mean, London is a fabulous city and it has a lot going for it, but equally somewhere like Cornwall, there's just a more romantic feel to that sort of setting, I would imagine. It is, and it's, it's a place where you can actually put your head down and not be so distracted because there are, I mean, I adore London and I regularly spend time there, but it's distracting. There are fantastic exhibitions, museums, people, endless restaurants, and, and if you have nothing but a pub and a great view, there's not a lot to distract you. <laughs> You, you get down and work. Well, tell us a bit about your work. Um, the reason that we're talking to you tonight is because you love to paint kitchen scenes and do portraits of chefs. So how did this passion arise? Well, it's always been there, even so far as I think one of my earliest memories is probably aged about 10, um, being shown actually around a rather smart kitchen, the waterside at Bray, um, which was then um, the Rue Brothers, and the head chef then was Pierre Kaufman. And I, the imagery stayed with me. You, you know, you have the serenity of this three Michelin-starred restaurant and then behind the swing doors, just the, the, the biggest theatre of a brigade of chefs and the whites and the lights and the pots and the pans and a frenzy of activity. And it, it stayed with me. And I think probably when I was in my early 20s, I had a studio just round the corner from a certain Gordon Ramsay and it was before he was as big as he is now and he let me into the kitchen to paint and I did a whole series for him this is now about about 18 years ago so that's probably where it started and those scenes where just the people working or is there always people in them or yeah, absolutely okay. I mean occasionally I might sort of veer off and get distracted by a fish but invariably, I very much enjoy, it's the, it's the energy of chefs at work. Um, sometimes they become quite intense portraits as a bit of a diversification. But on the whole, it's, it's that action of, of them all at work coming together, you know, at the pass. And it's, it's, it's very theatrical. 
You have a portrait of Gordon Ramsay on your website. I'm just looking at it now. Yes. When, so when was that done? That would have been, um, at a guess, I would say it was when he was, he, just before he took over at Claridge's, um, and the painting was actually done in his restaurant in Aubergine, but it subsequently is on the menu, or it's been on the menu, I think, for the last, I don't know how many years, at his restaurant, his flagship restaurant in Royal Hospital Road. Because he looks he looks very kind and gentle in that portrait, I think. <laughs> I think focused. <laughs> and young also. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, you know, either side of that moment is a rather terrifying <clears throat> Gordon. I mean, he is... He is an absolute master, and I did bear witness to him um, keeping his brigade in check, shall we say. Yeah, I'd say, yeah. <laughs> that was an experience in itself. Oh, amazing, amazing. And I don't think I've ever worked in such a hard kitchen, so it, was, it, it set me up well. Was he the first chef yes. that you ever painted, Diane? He was, and in actual fact, I, I did a lot of work with him because he subsequently commissioned a whole series to go around the chef's table at Claridge's. So that was a highlight. And then when I moved to Cornwall, I stopped painting chefs. But it was at the back of my mind, and then in the Observer Food Monthly, they featured an article on Gordon in front of this painting that was then quite old, and so I got in touch to say, maybe, maybe this needs to be redone. But he was a bit busy, and things were going on, and we did a rain check, and I thought, well, hang on a minute, who else is around? And there's a magnificent chef in Cornwall called Nathan Outlaw, who now has two Michelin stars, and I approached Nathan and went to go and see him in his restaurant. Which, is, which was then in Foy. He's now in Port Isaac. And we sort of an idea came to pass that actually wouldn't it be interesting to paint all of the top chefs in the country, which started off as about 15 and has probably now hit 50. So it's been a, a, quite, a, quite an extraordinary journey and one that I didn't envisage taking me quite the length of time. I've been on it for six years. Would you believe Nathan Outlaw was in Galway last year at an event, it's called Food on the Edge, that a lot of the world's best chefs would be at. And he opened that conference. He was the first speaker at it. And, I mean, he's very youthful. He's very young. He is. He is. He's fantastic. He's absolutely brilliant. I mean, he's, he's, he, I'm, not, I mean I'm fascinated to hear that, but he's, he's very involved with the industry and promoting it and encouraging young people to come into it. He's a terrific figurehead, I think, for making the restaurant industry just just appealing to people because a lot of people may be looking for jobs and may not think about the kitchen but it's it's there's fantastic opportunities there it's hard work it's amongst the hardest work there is which is what i'm also drawn to because their hours and their commitment is extraordinary and somebody else that was at that conference last year that you have done a portrait of is claire smith who's from northern ireland originally that I didn't know, and I should know that. Yes, I have painted Claire. I haven't quite finished it. Um, oh, how interesting. And there's lots of other people there that listeners, the names that they'd recognise, like Gary Rhodes. Um, I'd like to see how you did his hair in that portrait. I, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. It is, it, you can find it on my Twitter feed. OK, um, I must look for that. <laughs> yeah, but it's, I've enjoyed painting Gary. I mean, he's not often in the country because he's largely based in Dubai, but I got lucky to meet him and paint his portrait and when and when you paint these chefs are you doing it from them in real life or do you do it from do you take photographs and go away i do i cheat i take photographs and i do sketches because the reality is some of them are huge i did a painting of james martin that was about 12 foot so i can't really erect that in the middle of the kitchen (laughs) and they take me months as well so i mean sometimes i can do a quick sketch but the more labored finished pieces they have to be studio based so, also, you, you, you want to... The, what I'm really interested in is, is that moment of, of activity. And you'd never catch that without using photography or sketches. You're putting together lots of different images that you've seen while you've worked in the kitchens. Yeah, you would have to see them at work, wouldn't you, really, to yeah. capture that essence and transfer yeah. it onto the... Like, what sort of um, materials do you use then? Is it all oil paintings? They are. They're, yeah. they're all... They're, I mean, sometimes I use the mixed media. Sometimes I do pull in egg tempera. Um, they're all, but mostly they're all oils on canvas. Um, yeah. Is is it all British chefs? No, no. I have just finished a painting of Ken Hom, and there's an awful lot of French chefs in there. Unsurprisingly, there's also Atul Kusha, who's a wonderful Indian chef with Benares in Berkeley Square in London. I'm just trying to think. And I also travelled to Spain to paint the youngest ever three Michelin-starred chef, who's a chap called Enrico Axter, who's who's 
brilliant. Um, and I've painted Daniel Ballou, who's a very, very successful New York-based chef. And Richard Corrigan, one of uh, our yes, Irish have, chefs. Yeah, I've, I've been painting Richard Corrigan. I haven't been able to get it quite right. I'm still struggling with that one because I have never come across such an animated person. Oh, really? Probably not surprising, being <laughs> Irish. She has huge amounts of charm, but his face never stops moving. So you're, <laughs> you're struggling. <laughs> so there's going to be, or is there an exhibition of these of these chef paintings is that the plan well the plan is a book called a portrait of the great chefs of britain um but at the moment that's sort of in it i haven't finished because there's still a couple of big chefs that i want to paint notably marco pierre white and heston blumenthal so i sort of i haven't quite finished the series but i've got my feelers out and i'm talking to publishers and i would imagine we'll be hopefully looking to combine a book launch with an exhibition of some of them and and how do you is it through their publicist then that you make the approach that you'd like to do the painting you of know, them no I, no I mean I have in a couple of instances but on the whole I've been really old fashioned about it I've got my my old writing paper out pen, pen to paper and, and handwritten them all letters well that always gets attention now in this day and age doesn't it I think it probably does yeah. I, had, I, had, I, I didn't even pick up the telephone I just sat down and methodically wrote out personal letters because it's it's been a very personal journey for me and it, it wasn't so overwhelming because I started as I said with just a few and what would happen is I'd be with one chef for example I remember being with Sat Baines in Nottingham and he said to me gosh you must paint Daniel Clifford and so then it became about the chefs helping out and actually then introducing me to the next chef so it got almost easier as I got more into the series because more of them became aware of what I was doing and when I got in touch they they knew who I was and it wasn't just this absolutely deranged artist <laughs> coming at them from out of the blue there was like oh yes that's the one that paints chefs and you have a target of you want to do 50 of the top chefs it's, yes and I'm pretty much there um yeah yes so hopefully we'll get to see that publication sooner rather than later I hope so <laughs> I hope so putting the pressure on you now Henrietta <laughs> Well, that's probably what I need as well. As I said, I've been distracted moving studios, and now that distraction is disposed. So if you can hear snorting, it's my pug who's just come to sit on my lap. <laughs> I'm sure he's great company for you. Is, is it during the day that you, yes. you would do most? Is it na is natural light very important whenever Funny you're... enough, no. I mean, it is. It's wonderful. But at the same time, you you, you know, it's, it's, it's this country. You can't have it all year round. So I, I, I have serious studio lights as well, so I can I can paint on into the night. Whenever you have an exhibition, there must be a great sense of pride and accomplishment to see your works of art hanging in a space and people admiring them and talking about them. <laughs> I think it's a little bit like going on the tube train in your underwear. It's actually... Oh, really? That doesn't sound like it's a very pleasurable experience. <laughs> it's actually quite, it's quite terrifying. Um, you know, it's, it's not that comfortable. The only time I really enjoyed it, and I'm going to show off now, and I'm not meaning to, but it's the only time I really enjoyed it because I felt very anonymous, was when I got my painting of James Martin into the National Portrait Gallery for the BP. Because then it was my painting amongst lots of others. And you could sort of stand back and listen to people. And of course, they didn't know you've done it. Whereas if you have a, just a complete show and it's got your name above the door, everyone knows that you've done it because they've come to see you and the work. Whereas... If in a sort of public space like that, it was more fun because I, was, I wasn't being looked at. People were just looking at the work, if that makes sense. You sound very like a very modest person. I don't know about that, but I did enjoy American while I'm walking past my painting and just going, oh, my God, great watch. And then she just carried on walking. I thought, oh, that, that was good. That so was really so that hard. was the watch that you had painted as part of it. <laughs> wow. Isn't it amazing what people notice, though, yes, and what yes. stands out to people? And she was right to set because it was an extremely difficult thing to paint. So she picked up on something I was glad about. They say, now you can tell me is this true or not, that whenever it comes to capturing somebody's likeness, that it's more difficult to capture a female likeness than a male likeness. I think that's very true. Um, and on the whole, apart from Angela Hartnett and Claire Smith, and there's maybe a couple of others that I should paint, um, it's, it's probably for my benefit that the hospitality industry is male dominated because men I, I do find them much easier to paint there's more baggage with a woman I'm afraid yeah. so it's just it's it, there's a greater pressure when it comes to I suppose beauty um, 
or, or attractiveness. I hope I'm not sounding superficial, but a rugged old male face is a joy to paint, whereas you might not want to necessarily portray a woman like that. I'm sensitive to making people want to look their best. Yeah, whenever we got married, Michael and I got married, we got a caricature done that people could sign the mount of. And whenever the first draft came through to me, of course, Michael looked fantastic. He looked like himself and he just laughed whenever he saw me. <laughs> and he said, you don't look great now, do you? And I'm like, well, it is a caricature. It is a caricature. And you don't want to go back and say to them, well, I did go back and say, could you make me look just a tiny bit better? Just a teeny tiny bit better. No, I know that because actually my husband did a, he's also a painter and he did a, about a 12-foot portrait of me and my dog. And I must admit, I find that quite hard to look at because I, my expression basically reads, go away. Really? I didn't enjoy the process at all, and it showed on my face. Like, could you just, you know, I won't swear, but just back off. <laughs> now, you did have an exhibition recently, was it, in your the village where you live? Not that long ago. Um, it's actually probably about 18 months ago I had an exhibition at the Old Coast Guard Hotel of about... 10 of the chef paintings. Um, that was a friend of mine who runs the hotel. It was his idea. So that was nice to be able to show the community what I'm up to, because otherwise I do work in isolation. So the paintings have, have, some of them have been seen. So that was 10 of them then. So, I mean, it's taken you, uh, you know, a lot of time to put... Yeah. Now, there are 50 in it, so there is obviously a lot to the collection. So how many years have you been doing the about doing them over? Year. Embarrassingly, about six years. I really thought it was going to take me just a sort of two or three. But as I said, it just it just spiralled. And I didn't want to leave anyone out. I mean, it was it was very much a case of people saying to me, but this person, and then reeling off their achievements, and me thinking, if I'm going to do this, I can't afford to, to have holes in it. Um, I have to, be, have to be, you know, try and really get a comprehensive collection to represent what I'm trying to record. Because historically thinking, I, um, speaking, I do think there is a gastronomic revolution. I mean, I think what's happened to our country, the entire the United Kingdom in the last really sort of 40 years, but more specifically 15, is is mind-blowing. Um, you can't... People talk about food and have a love of kitchens and restaurants in a way that was, I mean, unimaginable to my parents' generation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And I mean, I so fell much. in love with it, but the more I started working within it, the more I learned and the more I saw and the more I realized how it's shaped our culture massively. Um, and I wanted to try and get that onto canvases. I have no idea why. I just did. <laughs> Are you a good cook yourself? Do you like to cook? I love to cook. And that, I must admit, is a big perk. Because if you get to be with a three mission starred chef, you can just say to them, go on. What's the best way to cook pigeons? <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that free advice from the from the, the top chefs. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you this evening. You must keep in touch with us and let Thank us you, know Sarah. when you have the 50 finished and um, come on and tell us how it feels to have, have reached that milestone. Thank you, Sharon. That's very kind and I've enjoyed talking to you too. In the meantime, the best of luck with it and I'll let you go now and finish moving into your new studio. Lovely, brilliant. Thanks so much, Henrietta. Thanks for your time. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, I was talking to the lovely artist Henrietta Graham. And Henrietta was telling us all about her passion for painting kitchen scenes and doing portraits of chefs. So we're all looking forward to seeing that book with the 50 chefs in it whenever it comes out. And we should have given her website a mention. It's henriettagraham.co.uk. You'll see some of her fabulous work there. And earlier in the show, Ron Forrestal was here with Malbec wine suggestions for us, two from Argentina and one from Chile. So keep an eye out for those. And also the chair of the Irish Food Writers Guild, Aoife Carragy, was explaining what the Guild was all about and the different awards that they have and how the Social Responsibility Award is open at the moment. So be sure to nominate either yourself, your company or whoever you feel is worthy of a nomination. 
If you're just tuning in, you can catch the full show later in the week on the podcast, which is on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show or subscribe free of charge and download it on iTunes or use the little podcast app. Now, we were due to interview Shane Murray, who has appeared in the Great Irish Bake Off, but unfortunately he has been called away at the last minute and isn't able to do the interview. So we'll make sure to catch up with him on a different occasion. In the meantime, if you check out mudbakery.ie, you'll find out what Shane is up to and all the lovely cakes and buns and everything that he is making at the moment. In the meantime, before we finish up this evening, I'm going to tell you about the Moira Speciality Food Fair. Peter Hannan was in touch with me and asked me to give this a little shout out. That's on in Moira County Down this Saturday, the 20th of August, and it's from 10 o'clock until 6 o'clock in the evening. Free entry and car parking is also free. So basically what it is, it's a showcase of Northern Ireland's food culture with a day of food and fun. And it's going to feature a wide range of primary and artisan producers from the Moira area and across Northern Ireland. And I think if you're a food enthusiast or a family looking for a day out and you're up in that neck of the woods, it's well worth going along to. Because as you know, it is Northern Ireland's year of food and drink. So there'll be many award winning food offerings there to suit all tastes. Moira is very fortunate to have lots of celebrated Great Taste Supreme Champions, including McCartney's and Hannon Meats. They're both located there in the town and both will be featured in the kitchen sessions by chefs, including Moira's own Chris McGowan of Wine and Brine. I've heard about that restaurant. It um, is supposed to be very good. And he's going to be on the Great British Menu later in this year. And they've also got Derek Patterson of Moira's The Tannery part of the widely acclaimed Plough Group and Stevie Higginson of Square Bistro Lisburn. So it sounds like there's going to be a great market there where you can buy lots of things to take home as well as enjoying gourmet street food. And if you're looking for more information, visit facebook.com forward slash foodfairmoira or follow the speciality Food Fair Moira on Twitter and Instagram at Food Fair Moira. So best of luck to the organisers of that. It sounds like a great event. So sadly, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. So thanks very much for tuning in. Your company is always appreciated. And of course, to tonight's guests, Ron Forrestal, Aoife Carragy and Henrietta Graham. Next week... It's a bit of a different show for you because you're going to get a chance to hear my radio documentary. It's called Devlin's Yellow Man, A Taste of Childhood. And it was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. So I'm really delighted that I've spent the past 12 months making that. So I'm delighted that it's going to get an airing next week. And I hope you'll tune in and have a listen. And the week after that, it's a second helpings episode of the best possible taste because we've got five Tuesdays in August. So I'll be back at the start of September with a brand new best possible taste for you to enjoy. And until then, bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!